One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I, have, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me, the door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely give up and give you, sorry, get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and you will be given to you, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be answered to you, open to you, sorry. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be open. Amen. Let's, uh, let's pray. Our dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that you're a God of much grace and mercy, a God of forgiveness, uh, a God who calls us through Jesus to, uh, to know you and uh, to be your child, uh, to be reconciled to you and adopted into your family. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand the full measure of those gifts and graces in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, and help us to understand what it means uh, to be a child and how it is as your child that we can relate to you. Uh, so Father, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. You should have received uh, a handout on the way in. There's some Bible verses on there and um, also some other things uh, that you might find helpful. Uh, and we'll touch on those as we go through. Well, today is the, uh, is the last uh, of our series looking at the questions that you've asked uh, about the Bible and the Christian life. Uh, in a bit over a month, we're actually going to come back to another question, which is about uh, baptism and what that's about. But next week, we're going to move on to uh, a five-week series looking at Paul's second letter to Timothy and what that has to say about uh, the Christian life and about church and about ministry, Christian ministry. But the last question that we're thinking about uh, for the moment today is whether we need to keep asking God for forgiveness if we're already forgiven. Uh, it's, it's, it's a helpful question, I think, because it seems a little strange, doesn't it? If God has uh, promised to forgive us in Jesus, uh, then how does it make any sense if we're forgiven in Jesus to, to keep asking for forgiveness? Uh, what would asking for more forgiveness achieve if we're already forgiven? I have to confess uh, that this question is a bit of a cheat uh, because uh, no one actually asked this question uh, in the box. Uh, but, I, you know, I could have written it down and put it in the box. That would have been all right too. Uh, the reason that we're looking at this question is because over the eight years that I've been here, this is probably the question that has come up the most uh, in terms of in conversations, it's a question that comes up again and again. 
Uh, and so I thought it would be helpful to actually address it uh, publicly rather than just in individual uh, conversations. Uh, and when I kind of batted that idea around with others, they seemed to agree. So I thought, well, why not? Let's, let's go with that. So we're going to dig into the, uh, what the Bible says. And then at the end, there'll be a time uh, again of questions. So I think in answering this question, the place to start is with what the Bible says about forgiveness and about the full and free forgiveness of God in Jesus. So the Bible is crystal clear on that, that when we come to Jesus, if we're in Jesus, there is this full and free forgiveness that his death and resurrection has accomplished. So just to give a few examples, I've given you some passages there on that handout. Uh, the Apostle Peter says in Acts chapter 10, all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. There's forgiveness in Jesus. Or Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Uh, or Colossians chapter 2, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So all the charges uh, that stood against us, God's, uh, God's uh, charges against us, have been nailed to the cross. They've, they've been taken away. Uh, or Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So uh, the writer of Hebrews is comparing the Old, the Old Testament period where uh, the people had to continually offer these sacrifices again and again and again and again. Uh, and those sacrifices in themselves could never take away sins. But in Jesus' death on the cross, sin has once and for all decisively been dealt with. And by that one sacrifice, he says, he's made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So the great promise of the gospel, the, the wonderful promise of the gospel is that if you come to Jesus, if you humble yourself before him, if you acknowledge to him, uh, to the Father, uh, your, your sin, if you confess that, that you've rejected God and despised God and that you deserve uh, his wrath and judgment on account of that, uh, if you confess that uh, and entrust yourself to Jesus, then God forgives you. God forgives you and you stand no longer under his wrath, but he invites you into a relationship with him. Uh, in, he invites you into his family to be one of his children. The charge that stood against you that demanded your eternal judgment has been cancelled once and for all. It's been nailed to the cross. You no longer have to fear the, an eternity without God, the wrath of God, the judgment of God. If you've linked up with Jesus, you are a blood-bought child of God uh, and all your sins have been cast into the depths of the sea. There's no sin that's too great or too evil that can put you outside the forgiveness of God in Jesus. So the Bible is full of this rich 
and wonderful testimony to the grace of God in Jesus that we're saved decisively through him uh, if we link up with him. The, the trouble is that there's also lots of places that teach us to keep, that, that continually confessing our sins and seeking the forgiveness of God is part of the normal process of the Christian life. So the Old Testament is full of examples of confession and of seeking forgiveness so think of some of the great psalms there's a couple there from psalm 51 david says hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity or verse 14 he says deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed O god you who are god god my savior and my tongue will sing of your righteousness so david as he's praying this prayer, he already belongs to God. He's already in a relationship with God. He's God's chosen king. He's God's beloved king. Uh, and yet, uh, he's praying this prayer in a situation where he's sinned uh, grievously and he's asking God to forgive him. He, he belongs to God. He's in a right relationship with God through, through faith. And yet, he comes to God seeking God's forgiveness. Uh, Psalm 32 he says a similar thing. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So David's forgiveness is tied here to his fresh confession and seeking of divine mercy. He was already in a relationship with God, but he'd sinned. And in order to be forgiven, he needed, again, he needed to, be, he needed to confess his sins. But having confessed his sins, uh, David says, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Moving into the New Testament, that trend continues. So the clearest example of uh, that, of that need to continually uh, confess our sins to God and seek his forgiveness, come, that, the clearest example of that in the New Testament comes uh, on the mouth of Jesus himself, uh, uh, where he says in that passage that we read from Luke chapter 11, uh, where he's teaching his disciples to pray. They ask him, how should we pray? And he tells them, he says in verse 3, you should pray, give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. There's a few things to say about uh, that prayer of Jesus. Uh, first, Jesus explicitly teaches his disciples to ask God for forgiveness in their prayers. So, forgive us is not a statement of fact. It's not, you have forgiven us, but it's a, it's a request. Please forgive us. Uh, second, the prayer for daily bread, which is connected with this prayer, shows that Jesus is presenting a model uh, for, daily, for daily prayer. He's not giving us a model for how we begin the Christian life, but he's giving us a model for how we Continue in the Christian life. Uh, this prayer is, uh, forgiveness is not a request at the beginning, but it goes on. We're to ask for forgiveness with the same kind of frequency that we ask for the very stuff of life, which is food. Uh, in fact, grammatically, uh, the request for forgiveness is tied with the request for food, and it's tied with the request uh, for not being led into temptation. That is, they come as a package of constant requests to God. Uh, third, the other requests in Jesus' model prayer suggest that this prayer is not limited to the time before Jesus' crucifixion. 
So sometimes the argument is made that uh, Jesus told his disciples to pray for forgiveness because at the time that he was giving this command, this model prayer, they were still living in the Old Testament era. Uh, and, and once Jesus died for sins, uh, this prayer, that particular prayer, kind of faded into the background. They no longer needed to keep asking for forgiveness. But think about the other prayers that Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray here. Uh, the other requests, hallowed be your name. So that's not just a request for the time before Jesus' death and resurrection, but it's a, a request for all time. Uh, or your kingdom come, the same again, or lead us not into temptation, or give us our daily bread. The, the, the package of prayers that Jesus is giving are not just for that time before his death and resurrection, but indeed he's giving his disciples a model uh, for after as well. Uh, it makes sense to understand that if all those requests are uh, for before and after Jesus' death and resurrection, it makes sense to understand that forgiveness is in the same category. Uh, there's nothing in this passage to distinguish it from those and to suggest that that's not the case. Uh, if it was different, you would expect Jesus to say something like he says in other cases in the New Testament, where he th says things like, you know, he might put it like this, you have heard that it was said before... Uh, pray for forgiveness daily. But now I tell you, the time is coming. He doesn't say that. He gives them a model for prayer that he expects to continue uh, after his death and resurrection. These requests all come part of the package of Jesus' model prayer. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, lead us not into temptation, give us our daily bread, forgive us our sins. In line with that, we need to understand what the purpose of Jesus' mission was with his disciples while he was on the earth. When Jesus was teaching his disciples in whatever sense or aspect it was, he was always teaching them with that view for how life was to continue once he had ascended to be with the Father. The three years of instruction that he was giving them was never simply to teach them how they were to live for those three years, but how they were to live and how they were to teach and disciple the church after he had gone to be with the Father. So Jesus is giving them a model prayer for the church in the church age. In addition to that, uh, to, to relegate this request for forgiveness to the Old Testament era, I think, misunderstands what has changed between the Old Testament and the New Testament through the work of Christ. So what has changed between the Old Testament and the New Testament is not how we relate to God. We relate to God in the same way in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Uh, that is, we relate by faith. Uh, the change that has occurred is not the basis of our forgiveness. The Old Testament people were forgiven on the same basis that we were forgiven that we are forgiven. Uh, the sacrifices, the writer of Hebrews says, those Old Testament sacrifices did not take away sin. They, they were looking ahead to the sacrifice of Jesus. Nor is the change between the Old Testament and the New Testament that their forgiveness wore off. But ours doesn't. So the change is not that they were forgiven and spared from eternal condemnation and then they would sin again um, 
and then they would have to go and give a sacrifice again in order to get themselves back out from under eternal condemnation. And then they might sin again, and they had to go and make another sacrifice and get themselves out from under eternal condemnation. And then they would sin again, and then they had to go and make another sacrifice to get themselves out from under eternal condemnation. That's not how it worked. Paul says they were justified by faith every bit as much as we are. Abraham was justified by faith. Their eternal security was sure. Eternal standing was sure on the basis of faith. Rather, what has changed between the Old Testament and the New Testament is that Christ has accomplished now what they merely hoped for. Their sacrifice, the sacrifices that they made didn't accomplish anything. They provided no grounds for forgiveness. Rather, the ground of their forgiveness was what would ultimately happen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that has now happened. And so repentance and faith no longer requires the daily offering of Old Testament sacrifices because what they pointed to has now been enacted in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. What is finished is the administration of that, of that religious system. Uh, not the way that we express our faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. So Jesus stands in line in, in giving this command uh, to pray like this, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Jesus stands in line with the Old Testament believers and he shows that that model of faith uh, and prayer continues uh, into the, uh, the new era uh, after his death and resurrection. That idea then is confirmed uh, by the way that those, uh, those same ideas are carried on into the New Testament. So uh, the Apostle John repeats the same kind of idea in, in 1 John chapter 1. You have that passage there as well. Uh, it says there, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So John says that to claim to be without sin is to be deceived. The alternative is to acknowledge our sin, to confess our sin. But notice that here, this fresh confession of sin is accompanied by a fresh act of forgiveness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. John has in mind, not just, again, not just the beginning of the Christian life, but the ongoing reality of the Christian life. So in John's mind, the Christian life involves the ongoing frustration of sin, ongoing confession, and ongoing forgiveness. The ongoing frustration of sin, ongoing confession, and ongoing forgiveness. So we're freely forgiven in Christ. We've seen that. If we trust in Christ, we're freely forgiven in him. We're spared from eternal condemnation. But we also need to keep confessing our sins and seeking God's forgiveness. Both are true. And so when we sin, the model that Jesus gives us and that John gives us, when we sin, we need to come back to God to acknowledge what we've done and to ask him to forgive us. The Puritans, the, uh, the, 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 the Christians who lived uh, in, in England during the, uh, the 1700s and so on, 16 and 1700s, they used to talk about uh, keeping short records with God, keeping short accounts with God. 
Uh, so that is every day acknowledging to God the, the, the sins that have marred our life, uh, acknowledging them and, and, and uh, seeking his forgiveness in Jesus Christ afresh. The, the Bible writers, and indeed the Puritans as well, weren't suggesting that we come to God and we wonder whether or not he'll forgive us. Uh, we don't come to him and, and uh, continue, keep confessing the things in the past that we've already addressed with God. Uh, you know, we don't have to worry that maybe we haven't been forgiven properly for those things because we haven't confessed them properly or something like that. Now, our forgiveness is not grounded in the exactness of our words, our forgiveness is grounded in the once-for-all death of Jesus. Rather, we come to God seeking this fresh forgiveness uh, from him uh, for the sins of the day and trusting that he will forgive us again because we've linked up with Jesus and with his death and his uh, resurrection and his life uh, in our place. So the Bible holds both those things together that we're forgiven, spared eternal condemnation, and that we need to keep acknowledging our sins and seeking uh, the reconciliation of God in his forgiveness. But why is that? Those two things seem very puzzling, don't they? What, what, why? Why, if one is true, must we do the other? They seem almost mutually exclusive. The key to understanding it is to understand properly the doctrine of justification. Uh, so the idea that we don't uh, need to seek forgiveness once we're forgiven or once we're justified stems from a misunderstanding, a common misunderstanding of the doctrine of justification. So J.I. Packer talks about that misunderstanding in uh, uh, something he writes. He says, Thus, with regard to justification... Uh, the wrong view, antinomians, the wrong view, affirm that God never sees sin in believers. So this wrong view affirms that God never sees sin in believers. Once we're in Christ, whatever our subsequent lapses, this view believes that God sees us at every moment, uh, sees at every moment only the flawless righteousness of the Saviour's life on earth now reckoned to be ours. So God, the wrong view says God never sees sin in believers. Whatever subsequent lapses in a Christian life, all God sees is the flawless righteousness of Christ. And Packer says that's actually a wrong view. Now that might take you by surprise because I think that's actually quite a common view. And indeed, the way that justification was often explained to me was along those very lines. But actually... It's a wrong view of the doctrine of justification. It's not what the Bible teaches. The doctrine of justification holds that through faith in Jesus Christ, we know now already what the verdict of the last day will be. What will the verdict of the last day be? Righteous, holy and blameless. That verdict has been brought into the present time so that we don't have to wonder what that verdict will be on the last day. We don't have to wait until that day to know whether God will count us righteous and holy and blameless. God uh, already credits that to our account. We're counted, as Luther said, uh, simultaneously righteous and sinners. 
Uh, To put it another way, God reckons us to possess all the privileges of Christ, even though we haven't yet gained full possession of them. Uh, Herman Barvink, uh, who who was a theologian at the beginning of the last century, he described it as uh, like a wealthy man adopting a child and then that child being able to be called rich even though they haven't yet actually gained all the inheritance that has been promised to them. So they're adopted into the family, they're called rich, they're counted as rich, but they still haven't got all the goodies that have been promised. And the doctrine of justification is the same. That is, we're brought into the family of God, we're called holy and righteous and blameless in Christ, but we haven't actually received all the goodies yet. And God's not kind of fooled. He's not like, he's not squinting and going, oh yeah, I think, I think, he, might be, I think he might be sinless and perfect. He knows what we're like. But he's promised to us all the riches of Christ. And, and, and he deals with us on that basis. That's, that's the fundamental thing. He deals with us on that basis. So Barvink writes, God declares sinners righteous. He adopts them as his children, promises them Christ and all his benefits. For that reason, they are called righteous and one day will gain possession of all the treasures of grace. So as I said, that doesn't mean that God is unaware of our sins or unhurt by them. So just to give one example, Paul writes to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 4, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So he's talking to Christians, he says they've been sealed for the day of redemption, that seal can't be broken, it's the testimony of God, you will receive what's been promised to you, and yet he says there's a possibility within the framework of this relationship with God, which is sealed for the day of redemption, there is a possibility that you can grieve God and grieve the Holy Spirit. And if we can grieve God and hurt God and offend God then there must be a mechanism for reconciliation. And the only reconciliation that the Bible knows of is forgiveness. How do those things go together? Well, there's another uh, classic statement of faith called the Westminster Confession that explains how those things work. I printed it out for you on the back of that sheet. Uh, along with a couple of other quotes from uh, another one called the Heidelberg Catechism, which holds both those truths together as well. But the Westminster Confession explains it really nicely, I think. It says, God continues to forgive the sins of those that are justified. And although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may, by their sins, fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. So here's how it works. Once we're justified through faith in Christ, we link up with Jesus, we're justified by faith in him, we're justified once and for all. We we can't fall under the, the eternal condemnation of God again. But we can fall under God's fatherly displeasure. We can grieve and offend God, and we can damage our relationship with him. He can remove, as the Westminster Confession says, the light of his countenance. Our relationship with God can be strained and hurt. So when we ask for forgiveness subsequently in the Christian life, we're not asking to be spared from eternal condemnation. 
We're asking to be reconciled with our Heavenly Father, with whom we've strained our relationship because of the sin that goes on in our life. We're asking not to be spared from eternal condemnation again. That's already happened. We're asking to be spared from his fatherly displeasure. We're asking for reconciliation, not into a new relationship, but into a relationship, the restoration of a relationship that we already possess. It helps, I think, to think about this from the perspective of another kind of metaphor of salvation that the Bible gives us, which is adoption. We tend to talk about justification, but adoption is a really helpful metaphor. So when we put our trust in Jesus, we're adopted into God's family, and once we're in the family, we can't leave it. The Holy Spirit seals us for the day of of, uh, redemption. We're born again through the Holy Spirit. We're reborn into into the family. But within that family relationship, we can have ups and downs. We know that, don't we? We know the reality of those ups and downs in human relationships. When we hurt people, it strains the relationship. And how do we deal with that? We need to ask for their forgiveness and to be reconciled to them. And it's the same in our relationship with God. Through Jesus, when we link up with him, we're adopted into the family. We're promised all the treasures of grace. But that relationship with God can have its ups and downs. And so when we sin, we need to come to God and acknowledge that and ask for that reconciliation and restoration. That's what Jesus was talking about when he was teaching his disciples to pray to the Father. Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. He was speaking to people who were in the family relationship with God. So if you belong to Jesus when you come to God, uh, seeking his forgiveness, you're not asking to be spared eternal condemnation. You're not living in fear that if you die before you confess that sin and seek his forgiveness, you're not living in fear that you might be uh, condemned to hell. No, adopted, justified, once and for all. When you come to God seeking his forgiveness, you're asking for the restoration of that relationship because you're sorry that you've grieved him and caused damage to that relationship. Neither are you coming uh, to God uh, to confess your sins because it's helpful for you. It's not a psychological benefit. It's about reconciliation uh, rather than about us. Do we uh, need to ask for forgiveness if we're already forgiven in Jesus? The answer is yes. Not in the sense of asking for forgiveness for things we've already been forgiven for, not in the sense of needing to constantly re-escape the judgment of God, but in the sense of needing to maintain a healthy relationship with the God who has adopted us into his family and the God who this side of eternity we will continue to grieve but who always welcomes us with open arms to be restored to a full and free relationship with him, to restore to us the light of his countenance in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you that uh, for those of us who've linked up with Jesus, who've entrusted ourselves to him, who've acknowledged our sin, Uh, and our need of your grace in his death on the cross. Lord, thank you that we have been 
justified, promised all the treasures of grace, adopted into your family. And Lord, thank you that that is something that we cannot lose uh, because we are in Christ uh, and uh, have all that belongs to him. Uh, but Lord, we want to acknowledge uh, that t- we, we recognize the reality that day by day we live in ways that grieve you, that grieve the Holy Spirit, uh, that grieve the Lord Jesus who died uh, for us to, to deliver us from sin. And so, Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for that uh, and that you would restore to, uh, to us the light of your countenance, that you would restore to us your face uh, and your grace and your mercy. Uh, Lord, help us every day to keep short accounts to come to you uh, not in fear but trusting that we're your children and seeking that reconciliation and restoration of a wonderful relationship with our heavenly father thank you that once we're in jesus we don't need to fear we don't need to be afraid but we can trust you and your grace a grace which has made a promise and a grace through which that promise will be kept at the last day. Lord, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Graham, do you want to just grab the microphone? If there's any questions, I'm happy to take those uh, now. Any questions on that, on forgiveness? Yep. Tell us there. Carl, I get the fact that once we're forgiven, we're forgiven. Yep. Now, what happens to a person, I'm thinking in particular someone like my mother who had dementia, yep. who through no fault of theirs may not yeah. realise they have caused grief or someone who has an acquired brain injury. Yep. I mean, how do they stand? Because they're not mentally aware that they may have yeah, yep. caused grief to someone and grieved God. I mean, what yeah. happens? Yeah, that's right. So... I mean, I think the great, the, the great truth of justification is that, um, you know, we can, we can lose our mind and our eternity with God is absolutely rock-solid secure because we've been born again into a new family. We've been promised that eternal inheritance and nothing can take that away. Um, uh, I'd... I don't think, with respect to kind of daily repentance and faith, it's more, I think, um, in the case of dementia, clearly those people are not really aware of what they're doing. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's an impossibility for them to uh, express that repentance and faith, uh, you know, probably in a, in a meaningful way. But I think there are times, too, when you see that, when you... Uh, when you spend time with someone who uh, uh, who ha- has suffered from dementia, sometimes when you're reading the Bible, when you're praying, or when you're singing an old hymn or something that they know, those realities do come out again. And I think that's a great encouragement as well for us. You know, we can know the doctrine of justification and that they're eternally secure, but but when we see those hallmarks of that faith peeking through the clouds of our human frailty I, I think that's a great encouragement that that seed of Christ you know lives on uh, in their life yeah yeah, uh, yeah. Anna 
Thanks, Carl. Um, you mentioned the Westminster Confession. Yep. What, um, you know, what, where from the Bible is that um, yep. mentioned or yep. how do you come to that? So I think it's the, what the Westminster Confession is doing is summarising uh, kind of how, how the Bible puts those things together. So you've got the full and free forgiveness of God You've got the command of Jesus and the model of seeking ongoing forgiveness, uh, and you've got the right, doc, the right, a right understanding of the doctrine of justification, and you find all those in different places in the Bible. So um, I didn't really go into where we find um, the doctrine of justification, but you could go, you could go to Romans chapter three, for instance, um, and other places like that. Um, but what the Westminster Confession is, 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 is saying is how do all those three things go together? Um, and you see in the New Testament very clearly, I think, uh, that, uh, as I said, not only the full and free forgiveness of God and ongoing repentance and, and forgiveness, seeking forgiveness, but also um, this living relationship of being, being in a family where, like, like Paul says, where we can grieve the Holy Spirit but where we can also seek um, uh, the, the mercy of God and, and so on. Um, yeah. Does that... So it's the, what, the, what the Westminster Confession is doing is putting together a whole of the Bible passages that don't necessarily all... At the one, there's not one place where you can go that puts it all together, but it's, put, it's putting those ideas together, I think, in a way which is, which is biblical. Yes, that's right. Yes, that's right. Now, now, we, like I said a few weeks ago, we, we can't always see from the outside whether someone has really been born again through the gospel, you know? So there's a, there's a, there's a difference between... There can be a, a thing called false faith, Jesus says. Uh, you know, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out many demons, and he'll say, away from me, I never knew you. So there are people who think they have a relationship with Jesus and they don't, so that's why we have to seek full assurance of faith. But for those who are truly come to, into a living relationship with Jesus, they are born again through the Holy Spirit. That is an irreversible reality. They are adopted into God's family. That's an irrevocable privilege. And they are promised uh, all the inheritance uh, which Christ has uh, won for himself uh, in his life, death and resurrection and he shares that with us. So, yes, once, if we truly receive the gospel, we cannot, we cannot lose that, that salvation. That's what Paul means when he says that the Holy Spirit has sealed us for the day of redemption. It's a guarantee. It's like the signature on the bottom of a contract. That's the kind of the same word that Paul is using there. Uh, or the, indeed the brand that was put on the, uh, on the animal, you know, to say this, this cow belongs to me. That's the kind of language that uh, the Bible is using. Yep, yep. Oh, sorry. Whoa, hang on. Yep, yep. 
if, if sorry, if we can fall under God's fatherly displeasure through grieving Him um, yep. by our sin, yep. how can we have confidence that God not only sort of tolerates us and, and won't send us to hell, but is pleased with us and delights in us as His children yep. if we're inherently sinful? Yep. Uh, I'm thinking like practically in terms of fighting sin and yep. and failing and wanting to keep fighting, and then sort of feeling like you can't come to God because He's not happy with you. Yeah, but God's in a place you can go. Like, yeah, how do you do that? Yeah, well, I mean, James says in James chapter 4, weep, mourn, wail, right? So that's, so James is saying that's part of the Christian life too. Like the Christian life isn't just all, um, you know, beer and Skittles. Uh, although we've been brought into this relationship with God, we can do things like David did, committing adultery, which are just horrendous and, and, and which can cause this great, you know, tension in the in our relationship with god like there's no there's no denying that i think in the biblical witness what it cannot do is get us booted out of the family right so i think in human terms we understand that you know that um when someone's in the when when the child in our family does something really grievous that puts an enormous strain on everyone in the family right but they're still part of the family, uh, and and the hope is for their for their re- reconciliation. And that's a bit like what it's like with God. So, we come into a relationship with Jesus. We're forgiven. That eternal condemnation is put away. We're adopted, but we can do things which lead which would lead to us needing to weep, mourn, and wail and seek seek God's God's forgiveness. But He promises that He is a, as a loving Father. John says, if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just. So he will do it. And he's talking there about the Christian life. He's talking about that ongoing reality of the Christian life. If we confess, then he's faithful and just. So God always stands with open arms to, re- to receive us back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I saw about five more hands. So we might um, keep Carl around the front. So if you've got more yep. questions... That's where he is. <laughs> there's a 